book speaking today. The last two weeks, as I prepared to speak, Kyle came up and he, he prayed with me before I spoke, and that meant a lot. And so it's my honor to get to pray for him today. Father, thank you for Kyle and his willingness to speak your word. And as I know, he, he feels the burden to speak your word, and, and, and I also know he gets nervous as he's up here, just like I do. I just pray that you calm his nerves, give him the boldness to speak, and that you use him today to speak your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. As always, I hope you all have had a good week. I would say that I hope you're able to get out and enjoy the weather, but between the rain and the sun, it's been kind of difficult to do that. I was outside yesterday and thoroughly burnt myself. <laughs> the kids thought it was funny, though. I was walking through the kitchen without a shirt on, and it looked like Daddy still had his tank top on, so they got a kick out of that. But I'd like to start out by thanking you all for your prayers over the last couple of weeks. Caitlin and I, our family, have been going through quite a few different things. I was supposed to preach on multiple occasions, but I wasn't able to. We had one week, Caitlin's mom had a heart attack, and then Caitlin had surgery. My great aunt died. My sister had a baby in Oklahoma. We got sick and something else. I can't remember. So it's been, thank you for your prayers. And, uh, I know that that's not the most trying thing that some of us are going through, but nonetheless, your prayers have been appreciated. And that's something that I'd like for us to kind of focus on today as we get into the second chapter of John, is sometimes life seems like it's going smoothly, and an event happens that you're not expecting, and Christ is there, and he blesses you, and he gets you through it, even if you're not aware of the blessing at the time. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and since it's been a while, we'll kind of have a little bit of review of the first chapter, not a not a very drastic one, but remember the Logos, as we always say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that word, word means Logos, which is an encompassing, all-powerful <clears throat> type of knowledge or intellect, and Christ is the light that shines into the darkness, He is the source of the light, He is the sustainer of the light, and we are the vessels that continue to help spread the light into an unbelieving world. Now remember also that we talked about one of the points in the first chapter of John that John continues to make about Christ is that He is the Creator. Remember that He is in the beginning, thus He is eternal. The the Trinity is eternal, and Christ was the creating factor. Through Him all things came into being. And so that is pivotal because as we continue to go through the Gospel of John, John is constantly pointing in multiple directions. He's pointing in the present. He's alluding to the future, to things that are going to be coming. And he's also going back to things that he's already spoken of. And he's going back, pointing us towards the Old Testament. Now, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see the beginning of Christ's ministry. We're going to see this kind of take off and this chain of events uh, start happening. Now, the first sign that happens is turning water into wine, which is what we're going to be looking at today. But there's a, there's a circle known as the signs of Cana, or the circle of Cana, whatever you want to call it. So we're going to start in Cana, in the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to go through 2, 3, and 4. And at the end of chapter 4, we're going to come back to Cana for the second sign, which is healing an official son. But in between the signs of Cana, there's going to be these new creations that keep happening, these new creations that Christ is doing. So we're going to see water turned into wine, which is a new creation. 
And then later on in chapter 2, as we study together, we'll see Christ going into the temple and talking about the creation of a new temple when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again when they asked for a sign. In chapter 3, he's going to talk to Nicodemus about a new birth and a new life. And in chapter 4, he's going to talk to the Samaritan woman at the well and express to her that there is a new way of worship coming. Before in 446, it states that he came therefore again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and the circle is complete. Now those points of new creation were brought up by Sinclair Ferguson, a wonderful theologian, and there's another one named Tim Mackey that kind of takes them and he builds on them even more. And this is something that I think is important for us to notice as we start looking at these chains of events together. Not only are new creations happening, but they are happening in places and with people and in circumstances that are culturally significant to the Jewish community. So is water being made into wine? Yes. But where? It's at a Jewish wedding. Is the temple being created new? Yes. And where is that happening at? At a temple. Is he talking to Nicodemus about the creation of a new life and a new birth? Yes. Nicodemus was a rabbi. And is he talking to the Samaritan woman about the form of new worship? Yes. But where is he doing that at? He's doing that at the well of Jacob. And all these times, these new creations that we are going to study are happening in places that were completely significant to the Jewish culture. And that is something to pick up on as we start looking at the first one, a wedding. So John chapter 2. If you haven't turned there already, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, obviously, the first thing to notice is that once again, it states that his disciples believed in him because they were picking up on the signs and the wonder that he was doing. Now, in the other Gospels, whenever Christ does some of these things, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke call them miracles or works of power and so on. But John calls them signs because he's trying to point out that these are displays of Christ's power. Christ's authority. When you see them, pay attention to what is happening and pay attention to the surroundings and understand that this is a declaration from him of his authority. 
Now, we said that this is happening at a Jewish wedding, and Jewish weddings were a little different than modern-day weddings. They would usually last for about a week, and it would be a gathering of a whole community, families, friends, the towns, and everyone nearby. But the key to this is that they were put on normally by the groom and his family. So there was a time period after the engagement to where the... The groom would go and he would prepare a house and gather assets and get everything ready for his bride-to-be. And then the wedding ceremony would happen. Now, at any point in the ceremony, before the consummation of the marriage, it was still possible for the engagement to be broken. So if he had done something like run out of wine, then it's not just, oh, man, the party stopped. It is this man is incapable of taking care of his wife. And this would either hang over their heads... It would be something that they were constantly reminded of. Or if he made the bride's family mad enough, they could actually break off the wedding. And it wouldn't even be allowed to happen because this was a sign of being incapable to provide. And yet, even in that, Christ was there and Christ provided for him, even though he was not aware of it in that moment. Now, when studying through this story A lot of times the thing that draws people attention out is that Christ calls Mary woman. And so that kind of translates a little poorly into today's modern English. But this is not a derogatory term. This is not Christ being disrespectful of anything. What this is, is this is a sign of separation. This is a sign of him separating from his earthly family and beginning the work of his father. You see, at this point, it it stands to reason that most theologians agree that his earthly father, Joseph, would have been dead. And now his ministry is beginning. So it is time for him to separate from his mother as well, because she brings this problem to him and he calls her woman, a generic term. And then he states that what does this have to do between us? Now, then he does turn around and do the miracle, which is the first sign, but it is because it was his father's timing and it was time for him to begin. And so we know that this is not derogatory as well, because when Christ is on the cross later in the gospel, he says, woman, look upon your son. And then he hands her responsibility over to John. So this is not him disrespecting her. This is a a beginning of his father's work starting and him separating from all of his earthly relations. And we know that as well as we continue to go through the gospel because you see John and other people refer to her as Mary, Mary the mother of Christ, or Mary the mother of Jesus, and yet Jesus only refers to her as woman. So that is what is going on here. Now, when you have, I don't know if you would call this a blessing or what, but when you have ADHD and OCD, Sometimes you get focused on things, and verse 6 and 7 did that for me. (laughs) So let's read that together real quick, and we'll kind of explore that. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. So when you read that, What are all the questions that you begin asking yourself, right? So what is the Jewish ritual of purification? Why were the jars there? Why were the jars at the wedding? Why does it matter that the jars were made of stone? Why were there six of them? Why does it matter how much they held? Why were they filled to the brim? Now you sit and you look at all of that and you think that these are just kind of details to the story. But every single one of those things is incredibly important to what's going on right now. And that is one thing that John does. You see, the the miracle of turning water into wine happens, 
And it could happen regardless of the location or who was in attendance or what was going on. But the fact that John highlights all of these little seemingly insignificant events and details adds to the breadth and it adds to the depth and to the story so that we gain a better understanding of the culture at the time and why everyone was declaring him to be the Messiah and putting their faith in him. So the purification ritual. So essentially what that was was you would take these stone jars and you would fill them with water. And before you would enter into a place, you would sometimes wash your hands or wash your feet or wash the utensils you were using. It wasn't necessarily hygienic. It was more ritualistic so that you were worthy to enter into where you were going. But they couldn't be normal jars because according to Leviticus, clay jars could be tainted and needed to be broken if they were. And sometimes bronze could be as well and it would have to be seared. Stone was the only type of vessel that was untainted. It was the only one that could not be corrupted. Now, when you look at the law of Moses, not only did the jars have to be stone, but they had to be filled with a certain type of water. In Leviticus 11, you see that these jars had to be filled from a source where the water was moving. So it had to be from a river, from a stream, from a well where it was flowing. It could not be stagnant water. Now, what the Jews referred to in this time of moving water, they called that water living water. So now look at this for a second. You have a ritual of purification happening in an untainted vessel that has living water inside of it. Can you see what that is pointing to? Then we ask ourselves, why is it important that it is filled to the brim? Well, in the ancient days, you would sit and they would never drink water straight or wine straight because water was sometimes dangerous to drink. And so you needed the fermentation process to kind of make it safe and kill off the bacteria. But if you drank wine all day, you'd be drunk and you'd never get anything done. So they would cut it. Now, normally, they would cut it 20 to 1 or 18 to 1, 18 parts water, one part wine. But at the time of a celebration, they would cut it. You know, four to one, or if you really wanted to get the party started, two to one, whatever. So, <laughs> so, but the reason why they filled it to the brim is because in doing so, if Christ would have added anything to it to cut it, it would have overflowed and the servants would have known. But when they filled it to the brim with water and they immediately dipped it out and it was wine, they knew that a miracle had happened. And that is why that is important for us to grasp. And then you sit, and as you continue to go on this journey with me, you ask yourself, so why is there six? What does that matter? Well, okay, so six was probably at the wedding because in Jewish culture, obviously words mean something in places and tradition, but numbers did as well. So six represented the number of man, which would be at a wedding because man was being completed by his wife coming and the two becoming one. But also six represented incompleteness. And seven represented completeness. Okay? So if you have six stone jars representing incompleteness, and in Psalm 118, Christ is referred to as the stone which the builders rejected, now you have seven vessels of purification. Or if you have six stone jars that are full of water turned to wine, and wine represents the blood of Christ, well, what is the seventh vessel? 
Well, the seventh vessel is Christ on the cross and his blood coming and finishing the purification process. This is something that John is catching our attention with so that we see this down the road when the seventh vessel is sacrificed and his blood is spilled, completing the process. Christ is beginning by showing his power and his authority in the beginning of this chain of events. Now, as you read through the gospel, as as uh, Darren says when talking to him, the gospel is everywhere in the gospel. And it's kind of like, well, okay, (laughs) I guess that makes sense. How do we look at this story and take something from it to apply to our life? Because it's seemingly a, a miracle that he did at a wedding. Well, what stuck out to me when I was contemplating this was, imagine the groom in this moment, okay? Now, it doesn't say that the groom found out that he ran out of wine. It simply says that the head waiter came and asked him, why did you save the best for last? The only people that knew he ran out were Jesus, Mary, and the servants. Now, imagine him being down the road, being with his wife and being at a function or being in his house with his children, whenever, and talking about their wedding day, and someone mentions the fact that, yeah, you ran out of wine, that was close. Jesus saved the day, though, or whatever, and him not even knowing that. Now imagine the fear when he realizes that he could have lost everything in that moment, but then the gratitude when he realizes that Christ blessed him and he wasn't even aware of it, and he has what he has now because of that blessing. Now, if we sit and we take that to our own lives, how many times does Christ bless us and get us through situations and we don't even realize he's working until we are down the road? And sometimes we don't even realize that he's blessed us, but it is something that other people can see. Christ can be moving in our lives, blessing us and working in a way that we're not aware of, but others around us are completely aware of because they see it. You know, we say things like, We're working on something important like a house or a heating element, and we remember that we didn't turn the breaker off, whatever it is. And we say to ourselves, well, thank God I noticed that. Thank God I noticed that, or it would have been bad. Well, did you notice it, or was it brought to your attention? Have you ever considered that? Or if you go to a doctor for one thing, and they find something else, and completely go down this path that was never known. Well, yes, they're highly trained, and they are a blessing, But there was something that was highlighted to them, shown to them, that they weren't even looking for. There's all these aspects and avenues in our life where he is continually blessing us, and we're not aware of it. And so I think, what would happen if in our prayer life, we began not just praising him for the things that we ask for, the things that are seen, the things that are tangible, but also for the things that are unknown? Whatever you've done today that I'm not aware of, thank you for it. However you helped me bless someone and I have no idea about it, I pray you use it in a way that I'll never know, but that helps them in their journey. Thank you so much for everything you've given me, that which I see and that which I don't. Because you can look at this situation of the wedding at Cana and you can analyze it in two different ways, right? One, they were headed down a path of something bad that was about to happen. And Christ prevented it from happening. Or two, they were knee deep in a situation, whether they realized it or not, and Christ stopped it and got them out of it. Either way, he blessed them in a time of need, and they were unaware of it. And so I'd like for us to take that with us as we continue to go forward and as we reflect back 
Christ blessing us in times of need that we are not aware of, and how our lives would change if we began thanking him for the things he's done for us, whether we're aware of it or not. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for everything you've done for us. I thank you for this body and the fellowship we have together. I pray that you continue to guide us in the days ahead. I thank you for the ways that you work in our lives that we can recognize and that we can't. I pray that you continue to bless us, to watch over us, to love us, and to help us to trust that you're always with us no matter what the situation is at hand. We pray a blessing on everyone throughout the week, and we ask that you continue to guide us in the days ahead. Amen.